Thank you for leading us, praise team. Please turn your Bibles, church, to Acts in chapter 19, if you will. Acts chapter 19. Just a reminder, we sent out information in an email this week, and it was in the midweek update. Next weekend, or this coming weekend, we're bringing Tim Sperduto uh, in as a candidate for our discipleship pastor role. Tim and his wife, Rachel, and two of their kids will be coming in on Thursday night, and then there's activities Friday evening. You'll have to just look at you, the stuff we've sent out that tells about all the times and for who, but adult Bible study leadership, um, small group leadership, meeting, question answer time on Friday night. Saturday, there'll be a church-wide meet and greet to get to know Tim and Rachel some and their family. And then Sunday morning, next Sunday morning on the 28th, we'll have a combined uh, Bible fellowship class in this room, in, this, in the worship center that Tim will teach. You'll be able to hear him teach there. And then we will, uh, that evening, have actually two business meetings after our small groups. Uh, we'll have our regular scheduled business meeting at 7, 10 p.m. And then immediately following that, we will have a special call to business meeting, and that will be specifically uh, to vote to extend the call to Tim Sperduto for that position. So that's this coming weekend. Okay, Acts chapter 19. This morning we look at verses 11 through 20. Now you've probably seen the commercials, or maybe you've read the advertisements, right? Holy water from the Jordan River. I mean, this is miracles, and this is healing. And, and by the way, it's only $90, and it's delivered directly to your door. Or perhaps you've seen the commercials for the Miracle Spring Water. Now, there's no claim that this comes from Israel, but it's Miracle Spring Water, and all the testimonies say, if you take this, if you be part of this, you're going to get paid cash. Like, cash is going to start coming to your door. Or maybe you've seen, if you haven't seen those, maybe you've seen the Be Made Whole healing cloths. Be Made Whole healing cloths, right? And by the way, they're free when you sow a seed into the ministry that is offering them, right? A financial seed into the ministry that's offering them. And don't worry, because the evangelist who offers these Be Made Well healing cloths will touch them personally before he sends them to your door. Or maybe you've seen the, the uh, Word of Faith preacher teaching you how you can activate your miracle, right? Receive your formula for a miracle. That's the promise. For a small fee, receive your formula. Or maybe the powerful anointing oil from the Holy Land, right? That's actually, this one's a little different because it's mixed with frankincense and myrrh and nard, all gifts that were given to Jesus during his earthly life. So it's gonna have a lot of value, a lot of benefit. You seen these commercials? Have you read these advertisements? I mean, truth is, the list goes on, right? The promise of healing, the promise of money, the promise of prosperity, the promise of blessing. And by the way, that's what Jesus wants for you right here and right now. That's the promise. Friends, we just take a step back. The prosperity gospel is so dangerous. Because what it says is that everything that Jesus promised is actually material right now in the here and now, and it's for you. And the bad things that happen in life, that's not really for you. That shouldn't be for you. No, there's the promise of love and life and healing and blessing and miracles and money and you name it and you claim it. 
how dangerous this teaching is. We can name countless false teachers alive and well today, people preying on the ignorant, all the while leading many people astray. But you know why it works? It works because we live in a culture where this is what someone desires so much. Like they treasure, they prize these things so much that they're willing to believe anything that's told to them or should I say sold to them because that's really what they want. Well, this morning we continue our study in the book of Acts and we find Paul still in the area of Ephesus and we're gonna come across some amazing, some extraordinary things that are happening. And we're gonna make sense of them And while we're doing that, we're going to see that we have a God who is worthy to be feared and a God who deserves to be followed. So let's stand together as we read in Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, I adjure you by the, by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirits answered them, Jesus I know, And Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver and the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily will you pray with me Lord thank you for these moments together Thank you for these moments in your word together. And what we need this morning is for you to speak to us. And and Lord, we understand that according to your plan, the means of grace of your word and your spirit can bring transformation and hope to us. Accomplishing salvation and sanctification. So Lord, we pray that we would be humble, that we would receive what you will say to us today and that what is said would correspond to truth because your word is truth. So help us, Lord, to receive from you even in these moments. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, last week, we learned of Paul's teaching ministry in Ephesus. We learned that he was teaching in the synagogues. After about three months, some people became disgruntled, and and Paul realized that this wasn't a good plan, so he moved to the house of, to the hall of Tyrannus, and, and he began to teach there. And we read that he was there for a long time, and he was teaching. So he had this ministry that maybe expanded about two months or two years or so there in Ephesus. And today we're going to learn of how God was using Paul in some incredible ways for his glory and for the good of the people. 
And as we look at the headings this morning, the first heading is this, fear the Lord who is worthy to be feared. Fear the Lord who is worthy to be feared. I mean, there's just no way around it. When we read in verses 11 and 12 about these extraordinary things that God was doing through Paul, it's amazing. I mean, it's an extraordinary summary of the miracles that God was doing through Paul. The text tells us that his aprons or his, his, his handkerchiefs were being taken to the sick and the diseases were fleeing and the, and the demons were fleeing because of the connection here but ultimately because of the power of God. Now, when we think of handkerchiefs, we could think of the items that Paul would have used as he was in his trade. So he was tent making, he had these handkerchiefs, literally sweat cloth, sweat rags, that he would have used as he was wiping himself off and cleaning up and doing his job, or the aprons would have been a garment that he was wearing as he was there making tents. And so people were taking these items that had been in contact with Paul and they were going and amazing things were happening. But notice even in those verses, the operative power here is God. It is God who is doing these things through Paul. And this is really important. It's really important because it points us to the powerful one and not Paul. In fact, when we think of signs and wonders in Scripture, the purpose is never to draw attention to the person through whom God is doing the signs and wonders. Right? This isn't about making Paul famous. We see this in the Old Testament too. We think of the prophets or we think of Moses or we, we think of people who were, God had empowered but empowered for a purpose. Yes, in Moses' staff, God is saying, I'm with you and I am going to accomplish great things through you for my glory and for the good of my people. It's never to just exalt Moses. It's never just to exalt one of the prophets like Elijah or Elisha or one of the apostles. It's always to point to someone or something greater. And that's what we see even here. Pointing us to the omnipotent God that he might be believed and feared. Signs and wonders point to something else. Signs and wonders are moving us in a direction, a very specific direction. The signs and the wonders are never to be the center of attention, but they're always to point us to something else. You know that my family had a vacation recently in Colorado, and we went to the Cave of the Winds. Some of you have been there, some of you have heard that. If you're going uh, west on Highway 24, you're going up into the mountain and, and you'll come across this curve and you'll see this sign. It says Cave of the Winds and it has this big arrow. You, you turn right there, you go up the hill further and that sign is pointing us to where the attraction is. That sign is saying, go this way to get to where you want to go. No one stops at the sign and just camps out there. No one stops at the cave of the wind signs and just begins to analyze the sign, what it's been made of, what it looks like, the colors it has. That's not the point. The point is what it's pointing us to, to the cave 
That's the main attraction. And in the same way, these signs and wonders are, are not the centerpiece. They are pointing us to something else. They're pointing us to the omnipotent God through whom or by whom these signs and wonders are actually taking place. So what do the signs and wonders do? Well, they give credibility to God's message. They give credibility to God's messengers through whom God is accomplishing these signs and wonders. In fact, the Apostle Paul himself in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12 will write that he was doing the signs of a true apostle. Right, That these signs were performed amongst the people with patience and with wonders and with mighty works. Paul is saying, look, we were accomplishing these things. These are the signs that accompany the true apostle, right? A true one who has been designated by God and sent out and they're for you so that you would believe the message, so that you would believe the testament. The same thing is written in Hebrews in chapter two. Hebrews chapter two, verses one through four, there is this message that needs to be believed. It's the message of salvation, of salvation in Jesus Christ. And, and the author of Hebrews says, look, this message was first attested to you by angels, and then by the Lord, and then by his spokespeople, right? The apostles. And how so? With signs and wonders. All of it confirmed. God confirming his message. God confirming the messenger through signs and wonders. But all pointing us to someone who is greater. All pointing us to the omnipotent God. Now, the miracles happening that were connected to Paul were for the purpose of confirming the message that he spoke. He was an apostle. And in the book of Acts, we read of multiple people that God used to do signs and wonders through. Not all of them are apostles in the true sense of what an apostle is, in the technical sense, like people like Barnabas and Philip. So please hear me. I'm not saying that God can't choose to do whatever he wants to do through whoever he wants to do it. But in the New Testament sense of things, the signs and wonders are for the purpose of verifying the message and verifying the messenger. In a transitionary time when, when the gospel had not yet reached certain lands and the canon of scripture was not complete. So in light of that, what does it mean for us today? Well, it means that we need to be very careful when we read of claims of miraculous things, like things that I talked about as I opened the, the text today, the sermon today. Especially when there is financial gain involved. Because so often these are money-making endeavors and not true signs that are pointing us to the one true and living God. So what we see with Paul is amazing. Right? Handkerchief and aprons. And of course, this got everyone's attention. And it's not so different than what we read about in Acts chapter 5 when people were just trying to get into the shadow of Peter so they might experience some blessing or some healing just because they're in the shadow of this man of God. Or it's not so different like the woman who had the bleeding issue who went and touched the hem of Jesus' garment when Jesus was in the crowd. Right? And I think what Luke is doing is he's, he's verifying for us again that Paul is a true apostle of Jesus Christ, commissioned by the risen Lord Jesus Christ. In the same vein, the same authority as Peter and others. So God was moving mightily. But I want us to see that Paul was faithful. Paul wasn't doing these things to bring attention to his own name. 
Paul wasn't doing these things to build his own kingdom. Paul was doing these things out of obedience to God for the glory of God and for the good of his people. So by way of application, it's important to note that while God doesn't seem to work wonders in us like he's working through Paul, he does want to do extraordinary things through our lives. He does want to use us in incredible ways for his glory and for the good of his church. I mean, he's given us his spirit. He's entrusted every follower of Jesus Christ in this room with his spirit. And his spirit gives gifts and empowers us for ministry that edifies, that builds up the body of Christ and that glorifies the name of Jesus. God wants to empower you to exercise your gift in the context of the local church. So he empowers your witness and he empowers your teaching and he empowers your serving and your helping and your exhortation and your encouragement and your leadership and your mercy and your generosity and your speaking. Why? Because it builds up the body of Christ. Because it causes us to grow into the likeness of Jesus Christ, into the head of the church. And it glorifies his name. It points to him. And he does this through men and women and boys and girls who are in Christ, who are humble, who are not seeking to build their own kingdom, who are seeking to be obedient and who are seeking to live according to truth and to walk in righteousness because in that person, God can do amazing things, incredible things for his glory and for the good of the family of God. So the question is, are you seeking to be faithful? Are you seeking to be faithful? Are you engaged? Are you serving? Are you exercising the gifts that God has given you for his glory? for the good of others? Are you speaking and living the gospel to the end that God may do his most amazing miracle? You know what that is? It's salvation. It's taking that dead heart of stone and making it alive, spiritual rebirth. And God desires to use you in that process as you become a spokesperson for the gospel, as you speak to the lost, as you engage those around you who don't know Christ. God desires to do an extraordinary miracle through you as you are faithful to proclaim the gospel. Look, it's easy to serve with the wrong motives. Easy. And it's common to serve in our own strength. But hear me say, it doesn't bring glory to God, and that's not overly pleasing to God. What's pleasing to God is when we serve for his glory. What's pleasing to God is when we rely on the spirit of God, and he works in us and through us. And frankly, it's easy to sit back and do nothing. It's easy to say, well, I'm too busy. I got other things going on. Or, you know, I I just don't really want to do anything. I don't want to do that. And friends, that doesn't please God either. So are we serving? Are we being faithful? Are we seeking to exercise the gifts that God has given us? Well, back in Ephesus, we see extraordinary things happening and people are taking note. Like, this is amazing. People are taking note, including the itinerant Jewish exorcists, people who have a, quote, ministry of casting out demons. Now, if you're like me, you don't really have much of a frame of reference for such a thing. We don't really have a category for understanding this very well, if we're honest. But back in this day, and honestly, like in 
in parts of the world that are less developed or are given over to animistic religions. This is a big deal. Like, demon possession is a big deal. And in our educated world, we explain everything away. And I get it, it's abused often, right? But we can't discredit it or discount it because in doing so, we're discounting the worldview of Jesus Christ and of the apostles and and how they grew up and how they lived. And they obviously recognized the spiritual dimension to things and the emphasis on spiritual warfare. So there's this topic that we don't fully understand, but we do understand that spiritual warfare is real. And we understand there is such a thing as demon possession, even if we don't fully understand it. So these Jewish uh, exorcists, the, these itinerant Jewish exorcists, right? The seven sons of a high priest uh, named Sceva, of a Jewish high priest named Sceva, uh, they're doing something there. Call it ministry, call it whatever you want to call it. They're doing something there. But there's a lot of questions about that. Well, who are these people? I mean, what does an itinerant Jewish exorcist do? Well, in ancient times, exorcists definitely had a place. They would recite these magical spells or these secret incantations seeking to control the spirit world around them. And many people believe that if you were a Jewish exorcist, then you were a, a higher level of an exorcist because you had knowledge of the secret pronunciation of God's true name. So they gave a lot of credit to these guys. Now, as far as who this guy Skiva was and what his connection was to the high priestly family, we don't know. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of discussion about this. I tend to think that this was an imposter and he just said he was connected to some high Jewish family because this would give him greater street cred. Like this would allow him to say, hey, this is our family business and these are my seven sons. And, and by the way, we're connected over here. So, uh, you know, you should come to us. So were they effective? Well, they made their living doing these things. All right? And if they weren't casting out demons, then they probably wouldn't have made a very good living. But now they saw this power, this power in the name of Jesus, so they wanted to co-opt that power, and they began to try to cast out a demon in this Jesus whom Paul proclaimed. Well, what happens isn't very helpful. In verses 15 and 16, we read that it didn't go very well for them. They, they try to cast out this demon, and this demon responds and basically overpowers the seven sons and wounds them and takes off their clothes, and they run home naked. They run out naked. So it doesn't go well for them. And notice what the demon says. I know Jesus... And I've heard of Paul, but who are you? Now, friends, this is significant because it points us to the importance of knowing Jesus. It points us to the importance of being known by Jesus. Jesus isn't just some name that we can say and then everything is okay. That's clear from the text. But there is power in the name of Jesus. In fact, we read in Romans chapter one that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And Jesus tells us in Acts chapter one that we will be clothed with power from on high when the spirit comes upon us. So there is power in Jesus, but it's not just power that is disconnected 
from relationship to Jesus. It's all about our connection, our relationship with Jesus where there is power and where that power is accessed and manifested, right? Another thought here, these demons know Jesus and they've heard of Paul. But let me ask, are you living in such a way whereby you are known as a servant of God? These demons know Jesus and they know Paul, but are you living in such a way whereby you are known as a servant of God? Is the fact that you are living for God's glory known by anyone? Like, do people look at your life and say, yeah, that person, they love Jesus. And I can tell because of what they're doing with their lives. I can tell with the way they act. I can tell with the words that they speak. I can tell with how they invest their money. I can tell with how they engage and love other people. I can tell. There's something about that person. They must know Jesus. They must be followers of Christ. Do your classmates know? Do your coworkers know? Do your neighbors know that you're living for Jesus? I mean, the way you live matters, right? Your faithfulness to speak and live the gospel matters. And not just for your own personal sanctification, but for everyone whom you come into contact with whose eternal destiny hangs in the balance. Do you know Jesus? Do they know that you love Jesus? So the result of these seven sons of Sceva fleeing naked and truly, really, the, the powerful manifestation of who God is, even amongst all the people there, points the people to the truth that there is a God who is powerful. So they begin to fear him. And they begin to extol his name. Now, as commentator Daryl Bach would argue, this doesn't mean that there was a mass revival that broke out and every man in Ephesus was saved. But it does mean that they were confronted with the truth. They were confronted with the truth of who he is. And many extolled, many glorified, or many praised the name of Jesus, right? God's power was displayed. He was confirming the identity and the message of Jesus. And people responded by worshiping him. So because of who the Lord is and what the Lord has done, we are to fear him. We are to live for him. We are to honor him. We are to worship him. We are to love him. We are to serve him. Fear the Lord as he deserves to be feared. But not only that, we are to follow the Lord as he is worthy to be followed. We are to follow the Lord as he is worthy to be followed. Now look, I think verses 18 through 20 are so significant. But let's look at them again. Acts chapter 19, verses 18 to 20. Remember, Paul had been in Ephesus for some time. Also, many of those who were now believers came. So he's been in Ephesus for some time. He's been proclaiming the gospel. He's been teaching the truth, pointing to Jesus being the Christ. And many put their hope and their trust in him. So over the course of the time that he was there, could have been, could have been up to two years at this point of his life there, uh, People came. These converts came. They see what's happening and what are they doing? They come and they're confessing and divulging their practices. 
And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So these people who had been saved under the ministry of Paul and the, and the other, his associates, missionary associates there, came now to this place and they said, wait a minute, we can't continue doing this anymore. We, we can't continue practicing these magic spells anymore. We have to turn from that because now we're following Jesus. So they're growing. They're growing in their faith. They're starting to understand, wait a minute, what are we doing with this stuff when we have Jesus right here? Why are we holding on to these things when Jesus is worthy of our all here? And we think about the magic that's being practiced here. And I want you to think about Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. And at the end of five, and as we move through six, there's this, there's this incredible focus on spiritual warfare there. Does that make sense now? There's this incredible focus on spiritual warfare as he writes to the church at Ephesus. And we see that this city is filled with spiritual warfare. Where Christians even were practicing magical spells. And now they're recognizing, oh, we got to turn from this. We can't do this anymore. Friends, it should never surprise us, ever surprise us, when non-Christians live like the rest of the world around them. Never. Because it's natural for them to live like the world around them. On the other hand, it should never surprise us when Christians seeing the glory of Christ begin to turn from their sin, confess their sin, and repudiate and renounce their sin. In fact, it should surprise us when that doesn't happen. It should surprise us when people who are following Christ can still dabble with the world. It should surprise us when people who are following Christ have no conviction over unrighteousness that they are hiding or harboring in their own lives. See, the actions of the believers in Ephesus point us to repentance and renunciation and recognition. There's something going on here that is so important as we follow the Lord. As we say, wait a minute, we're following someone greater. We're following someone who can satisfy us in whole. We're following King Jesus. We gotta, we gotta say goodbye to these other things that are, that are contrary to truth, that are contrary to following him, that are unrighteous. No, we gotta move in this direction because this is the direction of righteousness. So what do they do? They confess their sins. They publicly confess their sins. They publicly divulged their practices. Scholar Eckerd Schnabel says that when they were uh, publicly divulging all these secrets, they were saying, I don't want this anymore. There's no power here. Uh, the exorcist, they would all say, those who were involved with magic, they would say, the power's in the secrecy. I mean, you know this. You've, you've been to a magic show or you've seen magic shows on TV and it's all fun and games. And it's really amazing, Right? like the tricks that they can do. But if you know the trick, if you know how they're doing it, then it doesn't really, it does, it's not amazing to you anymore, right? Well, in ancient days, they would say that the secrecy made it powerful. 
And now these believers who were engaged in these kind of practices are coming and they're divulging their secrets. It has no power anymore, friends. There is a public confession here and not just a confession, there is a renunciation. They're throwing these books into the fire. I don't want it anymore. That can't be part of my life anymore. And friends, there are things in our lives that can't be part of our lives anymore because we follow Jesus Christ. Let's talk about this idea of public confession. One of the greatest means of grace that we have as followers of Christ is the family of God, as we encourage one another towards love and good deeds. And friends, all of us can make known our sin. We can confess our sin. And when sin is brought to the light, it loses its power. So we confess to people that we know, confess to people that we love, that we trust, that care for us and we care for them and they help us battle sin in our lives. And we battle sin in our lives together. We make it known. And then we put boundaries in place, right? We don't have these witchcraft books that we're, maybe, that we're throwing into the fire, but we do other things. We renounce sinfulness in our lives. What is it? What is it in your life? If we were to have a bonfire right here, what is it that you would throw into that fire and say, I don't want to have anything to do with it anymore because I'm living for someone who is greater because I'm following Jesus. What is it? Is it pornography? Is it a relationship? Is it materialism? What is it that is holding sway over your life right now that is keeping you from following Jesus fully? What is it? And I'm not saying we won't battle sin. We will struggle against sin, okay? That's gonna be a lifelong process. The question is, have you battled it to the full? Because a lot of us in this room will sin and sin and sin again the same way and we'll confess it. But the question is, have you put in place a strategy to put it to death? Have you confessed it? Have you made it public? Have you put the boundaries in place? Have you renounced it? Have you done everything you can to remove and to keep it from the temptation from your life? That's what we see here in the book of Acts. That's what we see here in Ephesus. And by the way, this was no small thing. Like they added up the value of this, 50,000 pieces of silver. All right? So commentators will say, if one piece of silver is worth a denarius, which is a day's labor, this would be the equivalent for working year-round with no time off or anything, 137 workers for a year. That's significant. That's costly. But who's the treasurer of our life? Is it Christ? Is it Jesus? Then he deserves to be followed with our whole being. Follow him as he is worthy to be followed. This is what he calls us to, friends. And some of us need to follow this pattern, right? Jesus is Lord of all. He's worthy of all. We can't serve two masters, Jesus says, very specifically in the context of money, but it's true in any area. 
In fact, James 4, 4, James, James half-brother Jesus, tells us that friendship with the world is enmity with God. You know what that means? That means when we live for the world or what the world has to offer, then we are making ourselves an enemy of God. That's what he says. Oh, but you know, these are just little things. Like These are just, everyone does that. Everyone spends their time doing that. Everyone buys into that. Everyone has debt. Everyone does these things. Oh, really? Okay. A friend of mine was teaching at a conference several years ago. He was talking about a, a friend's struggle with pornography, okay? And the means was through his smartphone. That was one of his, the, the main means where he would fail in this battle. And he was talking to his friend. He was telling them, hey, you, you, you got you to you set boundaries. You got to stern. You have to get rid of your smartphone. No, I can't get rid of my smartphone. I can't go on without that. I mean, I, I mean everything revolves around the smartphone, right? Well, you know, he was teaching in the Sermon on the Mount at that point. He was talking about the Sermon on the Mount. And he said, well, you know, Jesus says, if your right hand causes you to sin, then cut it off. It's better to enter into a heaven, more or less, with one arm than it would be to burn in hell forever. Oh, but I can't get rid of my smartphone, even though that's the biggest temptation in his life to keep moving in this way of sexual immorality. Are you going to battle it? Are you going to battle sin? Friends, friendship with the world is enmity with God. We can't seek to be friends with the world. We can't seek to harbor the sin in our lives and believe everything is going to be just fine. So here's the question. What are you holding on to that needs to be confessed and renounced in your life? What are you holding on to that needs to be confessed and renounced in your life? What are you cherishing in your life? What are you playing with sinfully in your life that you think doesn't really matter? If we were gonna have this bonfire, what needs to go in there? And we're not gonna have a bonfire, but I do pray that the Spirit of God would burn so fully in your heart right now that you would confess and that you would turn from sin and that you would continue to see Jesus as glorious and that you would want to follow him as he is worthy to be followed. And look, we can explain this away and many have tried to, okay? But in Matthew and chapter 10, verse 38, Jesus says, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So let's battle sin and let's live for the Lord and let's fear him and follow him as he deserves. Will you pray with me? Lord, in these moments, your, your spirit has been speaking and there are some in this room right now who feel a, a heaviness, a conviction of sin. And it's our desire, Lord, it's our prayer that in these moments, you would give courage and grace to confess and to renounce because we love you. Lord, we don't come up with these strategies. We don't come up with these ideas on our own. Lord, you give grace to your children. And what we are praying, God, what we are begging you is to purify us, that we would live fully for you, God, move in such a way that is undeniable in this room, in our lives, in our families. And God, there are some who don't know you personally. 
There are some who are far from you. They've never confessed their sin. They've never turned from their sin. I pray this morning that your spirit would work in their hearts, opening their eyes, that they would recognize your glory, your kingship, and their only hope for forgiveness of sin is found in Jesus Christ who died and rose again on their behalf. Work in this room even now in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, as we transition to our final song, I want to encourage you to, to be prayerful. What is God speaking to you? For some of you, that means confession of sin. Maybe, maybe up here at the altar, maybe where you are there, maybe even to someone in your family or to a close friend. Others of you need to know the gospel of Christ, need to know the way to salvation and forgiveness of sin. If that's you, then, then talk to me here at the front or one of our staff members another time, or maybe even someone you're here with who knows Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. God's at work. I don't know what he's doing in your life, but let's submit to it. Would you stand as we sing together?